Is the state of Georgia going to disenfranchise voters over missing hyphens on voter registration cards? What can be done about new strict voting rules, such as North Dakota's residential address rule that may disenfranchise Native American voters? Will the Supreme Court with new Justice Kavanaugh protect minority voting rights? On Season 2, Episode 3 of the ELB Podcast, we talk with Kristen Clark, President and Executive Director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. I'm joined today by Kristen Clark, President and Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, one of the leading civil rights organizations that is working to protect voters and making sure that they can register and vote in the upcoming midterm elections. Uh, the Lawyers Committee and Kristen have been very involved in election protection efforts, including through a very valuable hotline that's available to voters. Kristen and I sat down on Tuesday, October 16th, and talked about the state of play at that moment in time with all of the fights over voting rules going on throughout the country. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I thought maybe we would start by just talking about what's going on in Georgia. For some reason, uh, the issues in Georgia have gone to the, to the top of, of the news. I'm not sure if it's the fact that the Secretary of State is running for governor or the fact that there's an African-American woman running for governor or what it is about Georgia. But can you just kind of walk us through what are the voter protection issues you're seeing now? Uh, is this different from what we've seen in the past? And you know, where do you see things going in Georgia? There is a whole lot going on in Georgia in the 2018 midterm election cycle, and there are a few dynamics in play, but most certainly voter suppression is alive and well across the state, and we see that intensely at the state and local level. And I'll kind of walk through a few reasons about um, why I think that is, and then talk about some of the problems that we're up against. And I want to provide some context for this conversation. I think it's really important to note that, you know, here we are in 2018, and it's been five years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. The Supreme Court in 2013 issued a devastating ruling that got the heart of the Voting Rights Act. And what that case means is that in places like Georgia and other parts of the South and other parts of the country where this special provision applied, officials are for the first time um, entertaining and adopting voting changes without having to get federal review of those changes. And they are taking full advantage of um, this moment that we are in. Um, five years ago and prior to that, when we had the Section 5 uh, federal review requirement in place, states uh, like Georgia and officials all across the state had to get preclearance of new voting restrictions and requirements. And the federal review process was all about looking to see whether these voting changes were adopted with a discriminatory intent or would otherwise um, negatively harm African Americans and other. Um, minority voters. So um, 
Secretary of State Brian Kemp um, is uh, taking full advantage of this. Um, we'll talk a little bit about um, what he's done with respect to exact match, but I think it's really important to start this conversation by just noting that you know, we are operating in an era where we direly need the full protections of the Voting Rights Act and everything that we're seeing in Georgia right now um, underscores the urgency of getting um, the full protections of the Voting Rights Act restored. So here we are and um, voter suppression is rampant. Um, let's talk about Secretary of State Brian Kemp. We'll, we'll start right at the top. Um, in 2009, the state tried exact match, and I'll explain what that is, and they were blocked. They were stopped because we had the full protections of the Voting Rights Act in place back in 2009. In 2016, we started to do a lot of work at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law with groups on the ground across the state of Georgia. And there were groups out there um, spending their resources and working hard and knocking on doors and registering people to vote. And there came a moment where they realized that their efforts weren't bearing fruit, that the people they were reaching were not making it on to the registration rolls. And so they contacted us and we rolled up our sleeves and started to dig deeply to figure out what was going on. And we found out that Secretary of State Brian Kemp had adopted a policy, uh, exact match. And basically what exact match says is unless every letter, every number, every hyphen or accent mark or extra space on a registration form matches perfectly what's reflected in the state's databases, they will not process those registration forms. And so those forms were literally just piling up and collecting dust and we urged the state to abandon the scheme and they wouldn't. And so we sued in October of 2016. Our evidence in that case, Exhibit A, if you will, was the stark impact on African-Americans and other uh, minority communities who were more harshly uh, penalized by this, this policy. And uh, we won that case. We won. And Brian Kemp, uh, went ahead and processed tens of thousands of registration forms allowing people to participate in the November 2016 presidential election cycle who would have otherwise have been locked out. Here we are in 2018. Um, the state of Georgia lawmakers in 2017 decided, well, hey, you know, they defeated Kemp with his policy. Why don't we adopt the law, a law that does the same exact thing. You would expect that Secretary of State Brian Kemp in his role would say, hey, lawmakers, bad idea. This thing is discriminatory. They sued me and won. Don't do this. Um, he didn't do that. He sat back and lawmakers have now codified this practice. There's now a law and he is enforcing that law. And he knows very well that he shouldn't be and uh, we sued. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law filed a suit last week, arguing, as we know, uh, that this violates the Voting Rights Act, the National Voter Registration Act, and the Constitution. We filed this case along with our partners at the Campaign Legal Center, 
and we expect to prevail in this case because this is wrong. Um, this is using minutia as a tool to lock minority, uh, otherwise, uh, you know, minority voters out of the process. And it really is a case that shows the devastating fallout of that Supreme Court ruling that I mentioned. We're just in an era where we're playing whack-a-mole, where officials feel emboldened to resurrect um, discriminatory measures that they know are wrong because we don't have that strong federal review mechanism in place anymore. We don't have that preemptive strike. And it's almost as if officials are willing to gamble on organizations being slow to file suits, gamble on the lawsuits, allowing the clock to run. Um, it really is a devastating moment that we find ourselves in today. It really does sound reminiscent of the period before the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, when that's exactly what would happen, where the federal government would come yeah. in to southern states, and as soon as they left, they'd enact something very similar to what would, had been struck down. And the whole point of preclearance was to try to give this, the put the burden of proof and the onus of making change on the state that had shown itself engaging in discrimination. Right. And now the burden is on um, on voters and would-be voters and the organizations that are committed to protecting their rights. And it is most unfortunate um, because it means that we are just in a position where we're, there's a groundswell of litigation right now uh, trying to fight back, but it's hard to keep up. Uh, at every turn, you see officials trying another move, another scheme, and um, um, I think it's created a lot of burden for the organizations now tasked with doing this work, particularly when we have a justice department that, that is not helping. Um, no enforcement of the Voting Rights Act is happening at uh, the Justice Department right now. Um, and, you know, this is a moment kind of on the 11th hour of the election cycle when, you know, when these kinds of issues are coming up people, communities across the country would feel comfortable picking up the phone and calling DOJ to report problems to see if the government might use um, its, um, you know, special powers to uh, prevail upon officials to do the right thing. That's something we saw for decades and was incredibly helpful in neutralizing some of the problems that happened at the last minute. But we get lots of calls today from people who say they just don't feel comfortable turning to this Justice Department. Uh, and in fact, over the last year and a half, we've seen this Justice Department reversing course and sometimes taking positions that um, put themselves at odds with organizations that um, have as part of their mission uh, protecting the rights of minority voters in disenfranchised communities. Well, uh, before we, we turn to um, North Dakota, which is the next place I want to ask you about, uh, I want to ask, what, what about someone who's one of those 53,000 people on the list? It's John Smith, but he's put down uh, uh, John Smith without his middle name, and his middle name is what's on his birth certificate, and he's not shown as registered. What recourse does that person have right now? Well, people who are impacted 
um, should turn out to vote on election day, they may be subject to extra identification requirements that other voters are not subject to, and that is unfortunate. It's why we filed this lawsuit. We, we want a level playing field, but people should not give up. They should turn out to vote. I'll talk for a second about a group of people, though, who um, really are especially burdened by this exact match law, and that's new Americans. These are newly registered citizens of the United States who were naturalized uh, in, in you know, the recent uh, months and years and are trying to register to vote. And you know they attend naturalization ceremonies where they are encouraged to you know, um, embrace all aspects of American citizenship. They are encouraged to register and vote, and many of them um, avail themselves of the opportunity to do that, and Georgia's no exception. Here you literally have people who attach a United States naturalization form, a copy of it, with their registration form, and they're not making it onto the rolls either. And that's because the state's database is riddled with errors, but often not even updated in real time to reflect people um, who have become citizens of the United States. Um, we've found that um, th those people are particularly uh, impaired. They're not placed into a pending status. Um, they are going to have trouble getting access to absentee ballots and it's further reason why we filed this lawsuit. It is incredibly unfair for the state to use um, the fact that it has databases riddled with errors and to use minutia when it comes to um, you know, a, a missing space or a different letter on a registration form. It's, it is, um, we think, completely unfair uh, and unreasonable for the state to throw these kinds of obstacles in the way of people who are trying to exercise the most sacred right in our democracy. Well, what a, on the other side of the ledger, what can either Secretary of State Kemp or say the election officials in North Dakota where they have this new re, uh, requirement involving producing um, a street address which is impacting Native American uh, who are living on tribal lands. What about the claim these are needed to stop voter fraud? That, uh, in fact, without some validation, not only is there the concern about fraud, but the concern about public confidence. What, what has the litigation shown so far in terms of how big a threat these things are that might justify such uh, strict measures uh, for, uh, like, the exact match requirement? I mean, we're not seeing uh, any evidence of widespread or significant um, vote fraud that would warrant these kinds of harsh, punitive, penalizing measures that are literally impacting um, tens of thousands of people. Um, I uh, welcome anyone who can put forth a study that really shows true vote fraud happening in our country, but instead what we see are a lot of people who are pushing this myth, who come up with one or two random isolated examples, uh, usually where the facts are incredibly um, odd. You know, a, a person charged with vote fraud who was voting under 
his father's name, but they had the same exact first and last name. I mean, the, the, the examples that people put forth uh, can oftentimes be incredibly unpacked, uh, easily unpacked. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, these are solutions uh, in search of a problem. Uh, these are measures and voter suppression tactics that were outright banned uh, and blocked when we had the full protections of the Voting Rights Act in place. And it's kind of open season for officials in places like Georgia and Texas and North Carolina that know that there is no longer this federal review process that would have stopped them in their tracks. So um, I am not surprised that in this post-Shelby County era, we're hearing um, in, intense cries about uh, vote fraud, but at the end of the day, we just don't have any data or real evidence showing that uh, vote fraud uh, really exists, and, and it certainly doesn't justify these harsh, discriminatory, punitive, and un-American uh, tactics and schemes that we see are really just about locking people out of the polling place on election day. I want to ask you about the Supreme Court uh, for a final set of questions here. Um, you've talked a few times about Shelby County and what a disappointment that was. And, and uh, I've seen that since Shelby County, it's taken a lot of effort, but your group and other voting rights groups have had some successes in the courts in protecting voting rights. Uh, I'm wondering if you think things might shift with the loss of Justice Kennedy and the uh, confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And um, just to tell listeners that in, in the North Dakota case, where the claim was that this um, uh, exact match for, or actually the residential address requirement for uh, voting uh, is potentially having a discriminatory effect on Native American voters, uh, the district court had blocked the law uh, the appellate court had uh, put it back in place, and then the Supreme Court declined to get involved with only two justices, Justices uh, Kagan and Ginsburg, voting uh, to have um, put this law back on hold for this election. Uh, what do you think the future is going to look like at the Supreme Court in terms of protecting voting rights, both in any immediate run-ups to the 2018 midterm elections, as well as looking beyond that? Well, let's talk a little bit about um, 2020 uh, redistricting, which is just around the corner uh, and is often a moment where we've seen um, voting discrimination really rear its ugly head um, when we had the full protections of the Voting Rights Act in place and when the Justice Department was issuing objections to discriminatory voting laws and voting changes, we saw the greatest number of objections happening right around the start of the decade, happening right around the time that redistricting gets underway. And um, many of those objections were to discriminatory redistricting plans. It is worth underscoring that this will be the first redistricting cycle in more than five decades without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act in place, uh, presuming that Congress fails to act in time. And I think that that is uh, a frightening uh, prospect. Uh, everything that we've seen over the last five years has shown that officials will uh, 
resort knowingly to voter suppression. And I expect that we'll see a lot of rollbacks at the local, state, federal level when lawmakers um, open up uh, districting maps and, and get into the 2020 redistricting round if, if, if Congress doesn't act soon. But to your question about what a newly configured Supreme Court means, I will note that Justice Thomas has a very odd position when it comes to the Voting Rights Act and redistricting. He believes that um, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act does not apply to redistricting. And Justice Gorsuch uh, oddly joined him in a concurrence in a case last term espousing that same view. Um, I think it is unclear where Justice Kavanaugh will fall on this, but I would not be surprised for a moment given the close alignment in judicial philosophy between Justice Thomas and now Justice Kavanaugh. I would not be surprised if he joins the two in taking this outlier position. Um, the Voting Rights Act has been decimated by the Supreme Court. Section two is just about all we've got left uh, in terms of a strong federal tool to fight back against the way that discrimination rears its head in redistricting. Uh, the idea that we would have a third of the court uh, espousing a view that this core provision of the act uh, doesn't even apply at all to redistricting, I think is frightening and something we should all be mindful of over these next two years. There may be some case that goes to the Supreme Court that gives Thomas and uh, Gorsuch and potentially Kavanaugh the opportunity to um, uh, express and take that position, which I think would um, telegraph to officials um, around the country that, hey, it's, it's really open season now because you've got uh, a third of the court that if a case were to come before them is, is willing to take this unusual position that you know the, this kind of core provision of the act doesn't even apply and doesn't act as a check on, on their conduct. We'll have to say that uh, this has not been the most uplifting of conversations I've had on the podcast. Uh, so, so let me just close by asking you, uh, because I get asked all the time, uh, what can I do, people say, what can I do to uh, make sure that every eligible voter is able to cast a ballot that uh, will be fairly and accurately counted? What can the average person do? I, I tell them, uh, you know, give money to your uh, groups that are, are like yours working to um, uh, stop the most suppressive laws, but what else can people do? Well, registration deadlines are passing quickly, and I think it's important for people to reach uh, deep and uh, outside their network, they, if they can, to reach all of the not yet registered people out there across the country. There are millions of them, and so um, really focusing on uh, how we bring those voices into the process and get people registered uh, in states where registration opportunities still exist is, is number one. Number two, um, we operate at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, the nation's largest nonpartisan voter protection coalition. It's called 
election protection. And it's been in place for almost two decades. And right now we are swamped with calls from people across the country uh, who are asking, uh, you know, about um, early voting deadlines in their state, absentee voting deadlines, registration deadlines, um, who are asking questions about Brian Kemp's uh, exact match scheme and what it means for them, asking about voter, uh, voter ID requirements and um, you know what they look like and what can they do if they don't have a qualifying form of ID. Um, it's remarkable how difficult it can be for people to get access to good information at the local level. We have trained lawyers. This is a, an effort that um, involves a partnership with um, over 100 local and state organizations, more than 150 law firms that stretch from coast to coast. So we really encourage people to get the 866-hour-vote election protection hotline number out there far and wide. Um, we think it's important that people have a nonpartisan, trusted source that they can turn to. And uh, when you're out registering people, you got to give them this number. Uh, because it's important that they have a way to confirm at the end of the day that they made it onto the roll. So that certainly is something that people can do. We just launched a new feature where people can text election protection to 97779, um, and they can get an answer to their question uh, by text or get a call back from a lawyer if um, one is needed to really respond fully to their inquiry or problem. So that's something else. We talked about um, the loss of the heart of the Voting Rights Act and what it means for the world we're in, where we've got to bring cases and fight voter suppression case by case. It does take a lot of resources to do this work. And um, I'm glad that you encourage people to support organizations that are on the ground um, and fighting in the courts, um, you can visit our website at lawyerscommittee.org to learn more about our work and hit the donate button to support our fight. And then the last thing I would say is be vigilant. Be vigilant. These last weeks of the election cycle have proven to be and will likely continue to prove to be the ones where we see the most shenanigans and last minute efforts to really um, discourage and deter people from voting. We'll see continued efforts to reject absentee ballots as we've seen in Gwinnett County. Um, we'll see voter suppression at early voting sites, uh, sadly. It's really important that people be vigilant, take note of what may be happening in your community and report the problem. And one trusted place where you can report those problems is to 866-OUR-VOTE and our Election Protection uh, Coalition. Well, I think it's really sad that we have to have this discussion in 2018 and that there are still so many impediments for people who are eligible to vote to be able to vote. But uh, I appreciate you taking the time out. I know that this is an extremely busy time for you and it's likely to get only busier as the weeks go on. Uh, you know, um, thank you for having me and for focusing on these issues. I will say that while this was a dismal conversation, just kind of focusing on the realities, I am 
very encouraged by the fact that we are seeing a lot of mobilization around the country. We're seeing efforts to register college students and um, kids right out of high school and um, communities of color and women. And, you know, I, I'm very excited um, by a lot of the turnout rates that we're seeing um, during early voting in many parts of the country, excited by the turnout rates we saw during the primary. So at the end of the day, I am very hopeful and optimistic that we'll overcome the obstacles. And I am really hopeful that people will turn out in full force on election day. Our democracy works when every voice is heard and registered. Well, that's a much more optimistic note to end on. So uh, <laughs> I, I agree. Clark, uh, President and Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee, thank you so much for joining us on the ELB podcast. Thank you for having me. The ELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UC Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. Theme music for the ELB podcast is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FM, used under Creative Commons license. This is Rick Hassan of the ELB podcast. Goodbye.